1: Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wynn and welcome to the Roker Report podcast in association with the Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen as we eagerly and uh, maybe nervously look ahead to a potentially huge Easter weekend for Sunderland as we take on Oxford at the Stadium Light on Friday followed very quickly by a huge clash at London Road on Monday as we take on promotion rivals Peterborough United. So to help us build up to the weekend, uh, we have a friend of the pod and a voice I'm sure every Sunderland fan has heard at some point over the last 18 years in his role as commentator on all things Sunderland on BBC Radio Newcastle, and now BBC Radio Sunderland as well. So it is, of course, uh, Nick Barnes. Welcome, Nick. Thank you.
2: Thank you. BBC Radio Sunderland, it was a three-month trial, uh, which I I gather has gone really well, and uh, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that uh, we've had the... Green light from the uh, the new DG to to go ahead with Radio Sunderland. It just needs to go through all the processes, of Ofcom and uh, and so on. But uh, yeah, it will come back. So there will be a BBC Radio Sunderland. Good stuff. Well, there you go, hot off the press. Thanks for that, Nick. Yeah, how are you keeping? Keeping well? Yeah, good. I'm sort of buoyed by the news that we are being allowed to travel again, and we can go to Peterborough on Monday, Easter Monday. I mean, looking back, the last game that we were at was um, Lincoln City, um, which seems a long, long time ago now. Um, we've had to do all the games since then off um, either the club stream, and, and we did do one game off Sky, but then we had to stop doing that because of rights issues. So it's it's been frustrating and not being able to go to Wembley, full stop, and do the comment even do the commentary uh, for um, the cup final was 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 tough. But look, everyone's in the same boat. You know, it's just not about Benno and I. Everyone's been champing at the bit to get back to games. And we're lucky, you know, we've got a privileged position in the the jobs that we do, that we can actually go to the games. And we've been to all the home games. And as I say, it's it's great for us now that we're going to get back to the away games, starting with what, you know, was always going to be that massive game at Peterborough on Easter Monday. Yeah, I was was going to say,
1: actually, I mean, I had a look back and uh, you joined us last in March of last year. Uh, which was in the studio with uh, Amp Watson and Anthony Gare. That's and right, um, Yes, it's been some year to put it mildly since then.
2: <laughs> to be fair, but like you said, so, none of I mean, us saw it, what was coming, did we? I mean, it was it, 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 that, that yeah. sort of—it was like being run over by a truck, wasn't it? I mean, suddenly, from hmm. you know that position of relative sort of security in every sense, suddenly everyone's been thrown into complete disarray over the last year.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, you've just said that you're now allowed to go to away games, which I hadn't realised. So, so what's I mean, other than being allowed to go to to away games, is there anything else? I mean, in terms of the the current state of play with the restrictions, has has anything else changed other than you're allowed to travel?
2: No, it's largely. I mean, you, you know, with with every game, home or away, you know, you you, you have to go through the COVID sort of. Restrictions, having your temperature taken, um, socially distancing at games, interviews, both pre-match and in some instances post-match. For instance, Bristol Rovers the weekend was, was done on Zoom. So there's that. all those new sort of technological issues that we've had to deal with the, through the season and very little sort of one-to-one contact with managers or players. I mean, the hardest thing's been not going to the away games because trying to commentate off um, the club stream effectively a one camera shoot um, because obviously we're at the home game so we have another benefit of the extra cameras at the stadium of light but but we're there but trying to commentate off a one camera stream um, which is some minutes behind the actual live football because people are getting alerts on their phones and the like that Sunderland have scored and know two minutes ahead of us that there's been a goal it's it's been frustrating it's difficult you don't get that peripheral vision of the whole pitch one of the advantages of being at the game is that you get a feel for the whole game the way it's flowing you can see when substitutions are going to be made you can see how the teams are lining up from goal kicks because on the stream you just get the shot of the goalkeeper so all those things are very very frustrating they're very handicapping if you're trying to commentate overall on the game and the feel of the game and the way the game's going and and so on. So, um, you know, it's a godsend to be able to get back to the away games, especially these now coming up at the end of the season, which are going to be so, you know, absolutely crucial. Um, they're all going to be cup finals. So that is that that has been the biggest relief, I think, for Benno and I. But it's been a strange, surreal year. I, I was only chatting to someone today, actually, about, funny enough, it's someone who works at Manchester United, and they don't get the music through the PA played up to kick-off at Old Trafford. For Games, whereas at Sunderland, of course, we do, and then you have this very odd, very sort of um, unsettling feeling at three o'clock when suddenly the music stops and the, the stadium is in absolute silence. And you actually mentally jar, thinking, What's happened? Something happened, something happened. It's not, it's just that the game's about to kick off and the music has stopped. It's as simple as that, but with no fans in the stadium and no noise and no roar no atmosphere. It's it's. It, I still haven't got used to it. I still haven't got used to mm. that. And we're nearly through the whole season. Well, it must make your job, I
1: mean, obviously much more difficult in terms of not being there. But I mean, in terms of having that empty stadium, because I imagine kind of commentators, you, you use that atmosphere and the fans as a bit of a tool to tell some of the story. You know, you can pause if the fans are really up or sometimes I, I imagine you have to try and generate that feeling yourself sometimes in the commentary now.
2: Yeah, you do. And I think we've learned as the season's gone on how to to deal with it. Um, I think we lo- we've, we we learned how to deal with it in the Stadium of Light. I think you, you gain, you grow in confidence as the games go by of dealing with a commentary when there's nobody there. And, you know, You're aware that every single word can be heard probably by everybody in the stadium because it's just going to mm. echo around and I've, and then I, I we've probably learned how to deal with sitting in a studio with just sound effects effectively being piped through but they're not really sound effects they're in they're in the background but you you know you you're conscious you're very much in a studio environment and the the, the sound is is different in your headphones you don't have that live sort of outdoors feeling that you know you're getting when you're in in a in a in a live in in, in a stadium and so that that is something else we you know it's gradually sort of come to to learn how to deal with but the stranger thing is it's uh, goals and when they're scored because uh, at the start of the season i was being um criticized and probably fairly for not getting carried away with a goal being scored especially at the, the <laughs> stadium of light and the reason being is that when you've got crowds in the stadium you're you you you're carried along by the by the atmosphere and by the crowd. And when there's a goal, the crowd erupts. And that sound effect, that moment, and it can be a second, it can be two seconds, it can be three seconds, where I don't have to say anything. I can assimilate in my own head, who scored? Am I I right to call the goal scorer? Is it a goal? And then you can celebrate the goal. So you, you go through that process and it's, it's, or anybody listening, it's sort of the silence of the commentator, although generally I've got Benno shouting all over me, that, that silence is negligible. So people don't realise you, you, you're not saying anything. But now with nobody in the stadium, people know straight away you're not saying anything. So you've got to make a snap judgment on A, the goal scorer, B, is it a goal, and then C, react to the actual goal being scored. And that, is, that has been a learning curve again. That's been something I've had to relearn, you know, as a commentary skill, is to learn how to react in stadiums with no crowds to goals being scored. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a work in progress. I readily admit to that. Um, and the sooner we can get crowds back in, the better, because they are the lifeblood and they feed us as commentators. They feed the players the grounds without the fans, it's it's not really ultimately football.
1: Just actually, just because you said you're allowed back into into the away trips again, just just one one quick one I had uh, that's just cropped in my head is, uh, you know, throughout the the time when you haven't uh, been allowed to make the away trips, have there any been any occasions where you have thought? Oh, I'm quite glad I didn't have to make that that trip. I mean, I've I've got I've got Accrington in midweek in mind, but I, I could be wrong on that. one.
2: I don't mind. <laughs> Funny enough, I don't. I, I I hate missing any game. I I've, over the last eighteen years, I've missed. I think this is off the top of my head now. Well, until this season, I think I've missed five games. Four of those or three of those were at the beginning of the season when Niall Quinn was manager, and I was actually on family holiday uh, for the first few weeks of the season because the kids are that age, so we were away, and I missed that start to the season. And then later on, um, through completely my own total incompetence, I missed the game at Bradford in the FA Cup, because uh, when I was planning ahead, I thought it was a free weekend. I thought seeing the blank weekend, no fixture, it was an international break, so I booked a week at my parents in Devon um, and then saw the FA Cup draw being made, and Sunderland pulled out the hat against Bradford on February the 14th. I thought, ah... Yes, there's been a cock-up, but I, 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 rather than disappoint my parents, I reluctantly sat back from that game, which actually in hindsight was probably not a bad decision, and that was the last game I'd missed until this season. So I hate hate professionally, personally missing games. But then, of course, you get to, to answer your question, you get to this season and suddenly you're realising, actually, you don't have to go to MK Dons twice in a week, and um, <laughs> you don't have to go to Shrewsbury the following week on the... Tuesday night, and and there was part of me felt, mm, I've dodged a bullet here, but the other part of me hated it, absolutely hated it. I I, I really, I, I you know, I enjoy the the travel, I enjoy you know the whole process, if you like, um, and and it really jars if I'm not at the game. I I I I there's a sort of a pride in me, if you like, with my notes as well, with my matchbooks that I've now got um. A book this season, which is somehow tainted, it's sullied because I, I've had to write commentary off the TV stream or commentary provided by BBC Radio Solent, commentary provided by freelancers at Wembley, and, it, and it's and and the the book is in a way it's imperfect as a result, you know, because I've always tried to go through the whole season with every match and documented them religiously, and uh, and this season I've not been able to do that, and whilst. I you know it, it's it's difficult um but I've got to accept it I can't be churlish about that it's part and parcel of you know where we are with covid and everything else but it but it does it is um it is it's it's hard it it's it's been hard to take at times and yes you know I'm I'm the, the decision to allow us back to games from Easter Monday I mean I was I was for a whole week I was dreading an email saying we we've, we've delayed it it's going to be another few weeks and I was thinking how am I going to cope with that because we really have got beyond the point where this is, you know, uh, common sense or logical. And um, you know, you're, you're penalizing a lot of people by not allowing us to go. Um, but touch wood now look, we're back. The trains are booked. I'm going to get on it. I'm going. <laughs> Well, like I said, um, it's been a
1: year since we last caught up, and uh, there's been one or two changes at the club since we last caught up. Uh, back in December, we uh, swapped out uh, Phil Parkinson with Lee Johnson, and it was a bit odd because um, kind of nine times out of ten, managers get a honeymoon period, a bit of a bounce, because cause basically it's anyone but the last fella, pretty much. But Johnson seemed to take a bit of time to get his ideas across and, and kind of really, really get us going. I mean, do you think. I mean, was that down to how much they were drilled in the Parkinson style of play because it was kind of so rigid and 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 kind of in that, in that style? I mean, did they just need that time to change over to the new method, do you think?
2: That's quite interesting. I've not thought about it in that respect. I think, I mean, it's always difficult when a new manager comes in because, um, look, to, to sort of highlight it, we've seen Joe Barton and his comments about Ben Garner and Paul Tisdale last week, which, you know, for, to my mind, were totally unprofessional. But... You know he he's been, I guess, in his own mind, brutally honest about the previous regime, and the reason he's come in is because they failed, and no wonder he wants to come in and change things and you you know throw everything in the air and start again. So I I think from Lee Johnson's perspective, he would never be disingenuous enough to say, look, Phil Parkinson had got it wrong or this wasn't working, and we need to do this. But he clearly had a completely different way of working to Phil Parkinson. I think that's become increasingly clear over the last few weeks. Phil Parkinson was very much uh, conservative with a small C in the way he worked um, and the formations he employed and the way that he uh, managed the team during a game, which is a polar opposite to the way that Lee Johnson works and and how he, uh, you know, embraces technology, is embracing, we've seen already, you know, the the appointments in the last couple of weeks, head of data and analytics and so on. They're, They're worlds apart, so... I can understand why Lee Johnson found it, you know, probably um, quite challenging when he came in to uh, try and change the, well, the mentality for starters, the psychology, the training, the, the tactics, the formations. That was a lot. That's a lot to change. And I think he was right in the sense that, you know, he knew he had the personnel. I don't think there's any question all along. Managers know whether a player's good or they're bad. And I think that's one thing, you know, Charlie White, for instance, is a a prime example of this. Both Jack Ross and Phil Parkinson, despite Charlie White misfiring, always said that there was a player there. There is a player there. If you can find out the way of getting the best out of him. Now, Lee Johnson has found that. That is a a real sort of plaudit for him. That's a real tick for him that he's managed to find a way of playing that completely suits Charlie White, has rebuilt his confidence um, has transformed him but uh, these managers would always tell you that player was there it's finding the the key to unlock what it was that was preventing him from from finding it. I think, you know, it, it, Lee Johnson's a, an interesting character and I think he's right in what he said about the club that whoever you are wherever you are if you're offered the chance of managing Sunderland you're going to take it. It's a massive club you know, in terms of the your CV to be the one manager that takes it on and cracks it, imagine what that will do for him as, you know, his reputation in football, let alone what it'll mean for him as, you know, from from a Sunderland fans perspective, to be the manager that finally cracks it at Sunderland and brings them success again. And he's already done, you know, already he's, he's won a cup. He's got Charlie White firing. He's beaten Joey Barton. Look, he's ticking boxes. And even if he was to leave at the end of this season, He's done enough in the short time he's been here to have already made a name for himself, um, albeit at the third tier of English football. So in that sense, it's very promising. And I think it's been a remarkable turnaround when you think about that opening day defeat by Wigan for him um, and where the club were then. And I think a lot of fans were struggling to come to terms with Sunderland even being necessarily in the playoffs, let alone possibly in the top two. And now we're sitting talking and they're actually on the verge of being in the top two. And many, many fans would actually argue and quite validly that they can probably go up automatically. So, yeah. you, you know, it has been, despite that slow start, a sort of rapid sprint since the arrival of Kirill Louis-Dreyfus. And I think that's another factor here. I think that's another catalyst in the in the change.
1: Well, you said it was interesting, actually, Nick, Um, and I was looking at the stats earlier and I found it quite interesting in terms of that start that Lee Johnson had because in his first 12 League One fixtures, he he actually had a slightly worse record than Phil Parkinson's last 12, where Johnson, uh, he won four and lost three and Parkinson won five and lost three of of their respective 12 games. But I mean, since because they turned around at the Doncaster game, which... Seems an age ago, but it was actually only in the middle of February. Johnson's won eight and drawn two of the, the last 10 league games, which, I mean, is not a pretty amazing turnaround to just almost kind of click into that run. But I mean, like we said, we'd started on that, that Doncaster game, which was that kind of huge, that big victory, you know, where we, we, we kind of got, got some goals under our belt. But I mean, has, has that been the main difference for you that Johnson's brought in, that that difference in the final third?
2: Uh, yes, I think... There's been a real, i use that word, positivity about his approach to playing and, and attacking um, and, and his emphasis on trying to get the ball forwards quickly. I think one of the criticisms, gripes, whatever you want to call it, of Phil Parkinson was playing three at the back and then two holding midfielders, which seems, uh, I think, probably right, unnecessary at this level. It's overly cautious. Um, you know, you, you teams at this level, players are going to make mistakes. They're going to lose possession, but you're going to get possession back quickly. I think if you work on that premise, I think Lee Johnson probably works on that premise. If you you, you put your emphasis on the forward third, if you like, and the midfield, you're going to get more possession there with players who are ambitious and want to get the ball up into the penalty area. And he made it quite clear from the start, he wants to put five, six players or get five or six players into the 18-yard box when Sunderland are attacking because that as a percentage increases your chances of scoring and it does and you know you've got to trust your back four or your, and you know he has played with a three but generally it's been a back four you've got to trust them and you know he's hit upon a formula where 09 and Sanderson are doing a, a sterling job in the centre of defence whatever criticisms you have of Callum McFadden, he's done actually a fairly steady job at left back and when he's not been available Vokin's has stepped up to the plate on most occasions. Conor McLaughlin's, I think, had a steady season this season, in and out, I know, through injury and the international call-ups. But again, he's looked like a progressive player on the right-hand side. Power has stepped into that role where it's needed. When's needed. But the emphasis has always been on trying to get the ball forwards. McFadden likes to get forwards. McLaughlin likes to get forwards. Sanson and O'Neill like to get forwards. Power, we know. I think he's a better player in midfield than at right back, but even at right back, likes to get forwards. I'm told, and I don't know if this is true, there are incentives for the players in their pay packets to to, to pass the ball forwards and get the ball to the front men. But it's clear, you know, even without those incentives, it's more enjoyable to play that sort of football than it is to sit back and soak up pressure and defend. And Sunderland, you know, I I think have, have looked better... it and they are clearly getting the ball in the box more I mean the Bristol Rovers game for example at the weekend which was a scrappy horrible game it's always going to be a fight they still managed to carve out you know enough chances to on another day have won the game three or four nil so you know in that sense his his philosophy if you like is is working and it was just a case and as he said it himself Lee Johnson he had to get the players to buy into that took a few weeks to explain it to them and try and put over his point of view but they have bought into that and they clearly enjoy it I mean the team spirit is clearly very good and there's a I think an evidence of that from when we saw them all at Wembley and the players that couldn't be involved were on the balcony you know cheering the lads on and 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 just even by Aidan O'Brien's reaction after the game on Saturday at Bristol Rovers when I spoke to him it was just buoyant absolutely buoyant so there's clearly a very good team spirit there there's clearly a mentality in there that they want to see this job through and you know that mood's reflected in in the supporters as well, I think the fans are, you know, a sort of almost by osmosis, uh, a are, are, are feeling that that good, positive mood. But but like you said, I mean,
1: it would just be it would just be impressive that he's done that full stop. But I mean, his first move was to bring Ed McGeady back into the fold, which we think now it's a no-brainer. But possibly at the time, you know, people were debating. You know, is it a no-brainer? Was it the right thing in terms of the the, the, the squad morale and how was that going to play out? And then against the backdrop of all the injuries we've had, it's kind of even more
2: impressive. The McGeady thing has been, I think it's been a fascinating episode, if you want to call it that, in in the last year and a half because Phil Parkinson clearly had an issue with with Ada McGeady and I think it was, uh, it became... I think it was personal. I think um, Phil Parkinson felt that McGeady was um, too influential, if you like, in the dressing room and that undermined his role as manager. And I think he found it quite difficult to deal with that balance. Now, interestingly, Jack Ross always talked about McGeady and managing McGeady and Jack Ross, you know, was able to, to do so and he, and, he was getting the best out of McGeady. He was unfortunate that McGeady got that foot injury, um, and that derailed that season and derailed, you know, that relationship in a sense because McGeady couldn't couldn't play on. And it's interesting that Lee Johnson has talked about managing Aidan McGeady, and he is a character. He is someone that needs managing, and I don't think there's any dispute about that. And I don't think if Aidan McGeady uh, was honest with himself, he he would say, look, yeah, he's probably quite a difficult um, character for managers to deal with, but only because he is so passionate about playing, he's so passionate about the game, and he's so passionate about winning that he makes it difficult for the managers. He's a bright, bright footballer. You know, he's someone who, um, yeah, to a certain extent, wears his heart on his sleeve, but he knows he's talented. He knows that he's probably the best player in League One, full stop. At all, all the clubs on his day, and we saw that in that you know devastating afternoon when they took Lincoln apart. He is you know uh, without you know it's he's an unqualified brilliant player, but with genius comes the other side, if you like, and that's managing him. And Lee Johnson said right at the start, it's a no-brainer for him when you've got a player of that talent that you've got to bring him back into the fold. And he's only said in the last well last week actually in the build-up to the game at Bristol Rovers. He was asked a question by um, an Irish journalist about McGee. and he said, "Look, I like him. I like him a lot. And he and he and he and he needs managing, um, but he's managing him well. And he, you know, he's he's. I think he's. Lee Johnson's been able to bring out all the good things in McGee. If you like, he's he's made him enjoy his football again. He's made him an integral cog in the in the team, and and he's made him." Uh, at the moment, undroppable, you know, and, and you know, him and Charlie Wyke, you, you you couldn't even contemplate, consider that those two players wouldn't be on the starting 11 of any game at the moment because of what Lee Johnson has managed to do with both of them. He's restored Charlie Wyke's confidence and he's restored in Aidan McGeady a, a different sort of confidence, but in the same way, he's restored a belief in McGeady that he's a player that's wanted and i think that is it ultimately ada McGeady is someone who wants a manager to put an arm around him and say look you're the best player at this football club i, I just want you to show it just you know. and, and McGeady is is, a, is actually someone who's a, who at heart has very much got younger players in mind and bringing them through and and the irony was phil parkinson the, the argument uh, for phil parkinson was that McGeady's not in the starting line up he's not in the squad because there are younger players coming up behind him who have got a brighter future and we need to blood them. Well, the great irony was that well, he wasn't. He wasn't blooding them. He was bringing in players like Danny Graham. And so mm. McGeady's quite right to question the philosophy.
1: I mean, just on that on that philosophy, um, I mean, talking about the, kind of the good feeling around the club, it probably speaks volumes with the recent news that uh, Jack Diamond signed on until 2024. And uh, kind of as we've seen in the past with the likes of Josh it it's obviously important to get these kind of young, you know, highly rated players onto longer term contracts. But I mean, just just from a fan's point of view, the fact that they actually want to sign on long term, it's got to be a positive sign for the club.
2: Yeah. And I think, uh, again, I think this is a big reflection on um, the mood change, the mood shift. I think, you know, ultimately, as as Jack Diamond, I know, you know, you can sometimes read a press release and think it's a little bit anodyne it's clearly been written by someone else but the the crux is that when he says like I've been with this club since I was 14 it's you know I've grown up with it well that's that's true and you know any young player if you've grown up at any football club but to grow up at a club the size of Sunderland clearly it would mean something to be able to stay there and look forwards now to a brighter future now you know he signed at a time when there's a very good chance Sunderland are going to be playing in the championship next season Um, and if you're in the championship you've got a a chance of being in the Premier League. So, you know, the future in that sense has got to be one that a young player looks at and thinks, here's an opportunity for me. Another example of this is Dion Sanderson and all the talk about Dion Sanderson signing for Sunderland. Put yourself in Deion Sanderson's position. He's having a whale of a season. He's having a fantastic season at Sunderland, but he's from Wolverhampton. He plays for Wolverhampton Wanderers who are in the Premier League. He's, he's pulling up trees at the minute. He's getting noticed. He's, he's making headlines and people are saying, sign him. You're Dion Sanderson, you're from Wolverhampton, you're from a Premier League club. At the end of this season, you can go back to Wolverhampton and you'll be back at a Premier League club. You've cut out all the ifs and buts, what league will we be in next season? And yes, he might come back to Sunderland for a season on loan if they're in the championship. But if you were Dion Sanderson, you're about to play for your boyhood club, Wolverhampton Wanderers. So put yourself in Jack Diamond's position. Put yourself in Dan Neal's position or one, of, one or two of the other young players who've come up through the ranks, and you've got the opportunity now to sign and play for your hometown club, probably in the Championship and hopefully in the Premier League. Well, what sort of carrot is that to dangle for them? And now we've got Kirill Louis-Dreyfus in. Now we've got Lee Johnson. Now we're going to get ahead of recruitment next month. We've already got ahead of you know uh, data and, and analytics, et cetera. That is such a positive thing to look forward to why wouldn't you sign now for Sunderland? You know, I know it's been a basket case over the last few years and they've let players go and we've all said, well, why did X go? X, Major was a prime example and that was almost a metaphor for everything that was going wrong with the football club. Even then, you were saying, well, why on earth didn't they get a clause that he came back on loan for the rest of the season? Mm. Did anyone not have the common sense to try and negotiate that? But nobody had the, the wit or the, the, the wherewithal to do it. But now that has significantly changed. And for a player like Jack Diamond, under a manager like Lee Johnson or a head coach like Lee Johnson, with a mood that is surrounding the football club and a young owner in Kirill Louis Dreyfus is making all the right noises at the moment, why would you not sign? So that's got to be a big positive. Yeah. And you mentioned the,
1: the new owner there. Obviously, you actually talked about some of the, the, the recent appointments as well, you know, that, that on the data side, on the recruitment side. I mean, so so many changes, so many obvious changes. You know, real big changes at the club. But um, but I mean, just just you going in and around the club, into the stadium. I mean, have you seen any small changes happening around the club that you know it's kind of a the culture's changed? That you know, can you get a sense of that and a feel of it when you when you're in there?
2: Yeah, I, more from just um, bumping into people who work at the football club and who've come back off furlough and they're going back in now and. I've met a few that have um, been in the offices when Kirill Louis-Dreyfus has been around and they said the mood change is so significant. There's a real feeling of um, that this is a club on the up again. You know, Kirill Louis-Dreyfus has made himself very much a be seen, be heard around the office and, and embraced everybody coming back off furlough who have come back off furlough. I think in the last couple of days as well, Another significant change has been in the um, season cards and the number of messages on social media thanking Chris Waters, the supporters liaison officer, and all the help he's been given. I noticed a message this afternoon from someone. Thank you, Nicola, in the ticket office for all the help you gave me and my son in getting our seats and renewing our cards. I mean, that is, you know, when you look back a couple of years and staff and the club were being berated and belittled and people weren't going to go back and it was just a horrible, horrible, poisonous, toxic atmosphere surrounding the football club. That is such a significant sea change that you can sense that people are are, are starting to feel good about the football club again, and quite rightly. And, And, you know, these things, I've always said, are cyclical. Football clubs go through these processes. You only have to look at all the clubs that have dropped down to what is now League Two- Sheffield United, Wolverhampton Wanderers to, to, to League One, Leeds United, Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday, Manchester City. Look, they've all bounced back. Um, it may have taken some a long time. It's taken others a shorter time, but they all get back. If you're a big football club, you, you, you will climb back up the ladder again. And Sunderland's a massive football club. They'll get back up that ladder. And actually, I think a lot of people will look back rather fondly in some strange... Mis- misplaced probably view of their three years in in League One if we do go up this season because there's been a lot to be positive about and I think in um, um, often talked about away games when fans were allowed to go to away games in you know those road trips to Southend to Blackpool to Accrington 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 because we seem to keep going back there Rochdale <laughs> I, I, I I was chatting to Rob Mason the Sunderland club historian now and he was the programme editor about the fact that three years ago when we went to Rochdale for the first time and Rochdale were producing merchandise, first ever meeting between Rochdale and Sunderland, they were producing mugs and badges and the programme. We never dreamed that we'd be going back on a regular basis to Scotland to play league games, but that's what's happened. That that was the reality of it. But, you know, once Sunderland go out and climb back up into the championship, yeah, look, it, it's, it's it's been difficult. There's no question. And, you know, a lot of people have found it difficult to... Uh, Cope with that, but you know, looking back, I think people will look back fondly at these three years because I think it's been a chance to reinvent the football club. I think a lot of players have become more approachable. I think that's another side effect, if you like, of Sunderland being in League One is the players. I mean, Luke O'Nine is a prime example. Have become members very much of the community, very much of the Sunderland family. And uh, I've embraced that. Bailey Wright's another one. Um, That's something, you know, to a degree, it was there in the Premier League, but nothing like it's been in League One. And that's all part of the process of rebuilding and reinventing the football club. Big
1: weekend coming up, of course. Huge weekend. And uh, I mentioned it on uh, a, a podcast uh, the other week that uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, Easter 1998 in our first season at the Stadium of Light. Although it went a bit wrong uh, that season. We drew against QPR and West Brom um, and kind of threw automatic promotion away. And I think uh, Matty Gav mentioned on the pod the other week that it reminded them of Roy Keane's first season Mm -hmm. when we beat Wolves and Southampton to go top, um, and then we went on to win the title. I mean, how big do you think these two games could be while taking into account the still eight games to go after Monday?
2: Well, potentially, if they win both of them, they're huge because I think it's a signal to the rest of the league that Sunderland are, A, very much a force at the top of the table for automatic promotion. Interesting because earlier on, before we, we we we've spoken, Marco Gabbiadini said that it wouldn't be the end of the world if they, if they lost one of the two games against Oxford or Peterborough, and and actually I think he's probably right. I don't I, I know there would be a adverse reaction to to, to a defeat by either, but ultimate, ultimately I don't think it would be the end of the world. I think I still believe I still think Sunderland now will go up automatically. I mean, a lot has been spoken about Peterborough putting seven past Accrington Stanley last week. Well, they won't do that again. Um, They'll probably come back and bite me on the bum. But, (laughs) you know, from Peterborough's perspective, that was a one-off. I've got a very good friend, a colleague of mine, who is a Peterborough fan. He said to me, Peterborough are either absolutely brilliant or they're absolutely abject. There's no middle ground with them. And you look at their results and you think, "Mm, you know, he's got a point there. I was just sort of looking earlier today about their recent form and it's a, it's slightly patchy, you know, you, you, yeah, the 7-0 stands out, but they lost at Burton, they lost at Blackpool, they lost at home to Hull and those are in, in the last, you know, 10 games. So Sunderland's form is better than Peterborough's. Uh, there is a little bit of history, obviously, between the two. Um, ironically, the referee on Monday is the same referee was in charge of the 3-0 win by Peterborough when 09 and White was sent off, so slight, slight irony in that. But Oxford, to start with, their form, again, a lot of people were talking about how well they've, they've hit a vein of form. They've won three in the last 11. So that, you, that Sunderland shouldn't fear Oxford at the Stadium of Light on Friday afternoon. And I, and I think there's a factor in Sunderland at the moment. They've, there is still, I think, a bit of a problem mentally in playing at the Stadium of Light against teams. And teams do... Capitalise on that, and they do do work Sunderland in that respect. But I don't think they'll lose to Oxford, and I think going away from home now, and I think as they showed at Portsmouth, going to Peterborough on on Monday shouldn't hold any fears for them. In fact I think the way the players are thinking at the moment, they'll be more than fired up for that game on Monday at Peterborough. And as you say, then there are eight games left. Now the difficult games, yeah, I admit that. You've got Charlton, who are pushing for the playoffs, Wigan who now resolved their ownership issues. They're um, yeah, probably going to you know, be okay. Um, Blackpool twice. Well, look, Blackpool at home, I think, are probably going to be one of the tougher games in the run-in because their home form is very, very good. And they remind me very much of Crew When Sunderland went to Crew the other week and everyone was saying, we should be going to Crew and winning these games. Well, mm, look at their home record. It's very strong. Mm. Blackpool's home record is very strong. I just mentioned how they've beaten Peterborough. But Blackpool away are poor. So there are enough games left for Sunderland to, with the games they've got in hand to overtake Peterborough and Hull. And they've got to go to Hull as well. And I think as we've seen so far this season in the League Cup and in the League game at Christmas, they've cancelled each other out. Well, there'd be no problem with that. I wouldn't have a problem with Sunderland going to Hull and it being another draw because it effectively cancels them out. And if they've won their games in hand, then Sunderland are in pole position. So it it um, it's fascinating, and look, everyone will debate this till kingdom come because that's football. But I've just I, I think I'm with a lot of people at the moment who believe intuitively the mood within the team. And when I've been with clubs before, and Sunderland was one of them when they got promoted for Roy Keane, you just have this intuitive belief that this is the season. You, you just feel that this is the team that's going to it's going to do it, whether they. Uh, Play well or play badly. They're not going to play well in every game. There will be games they play very well in. Portsmouth was one of them. There'll be other games they have to scrap for their lives. But they're they're doing Mm -hmm. that. And Bristol Row was an example and they won it 1 0. So I'm feeling actually quite optimistic.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you you mentioned Oxford and kind of in terms of their form and and kind of, you know, when I looked into it, because I just, when you hear the name Oxford at the minute, they were on this run. And when I looked into it, like you said, I mean you know away from home, they've lost three of the last six, and one of them was against Hull a few weeks ago so i mean now now we've put ourselves in the in the position we're in, and the the expectation has to go up because we you know we are we are in the position we're in now, so we have to kind of take these teams at home and and almost ex- expect to to kind of beat them now because we we should be because we've put ourselves into that position where we can be. But um, if we do get those three points against Oxford, obviously that would kind of set it all nicely for Bank Holiday Monday, as you said, you're, you're travelling, which is fantastic, in front of the sky cameras. I mean, it's all set up, you know, for one of those games that in normal times would probably have half of Sunderland invading Peterborough um, for probably most of the weekend. <laughs> um, if it had been kind of, you know, and it'd be one of those kind of huge atmospheres. It would be one of those kind of games you talk about 20 years from now it's just one of those games where it really hits home that we haven't
2: got those type of atmospheres at the minute. Do you know, I've thought a lot about the the sort of run in over the last couple of weeks and the change in, in the mood at Sunderland and a lot of it is I think because Sunderland fans, because of what's happened over the last however many years, are naturally pessimistic about success. You know, Wembley, um missing out on the playoffs, the Points per game last season, there's this sort of natural inbuilt feeling that it'll be, you know, to use that phrase, typical Sunderland, that they get into this position now and and they blow it. But actually, the more I think about it, the more I think that over the last month and a half, two months, the mentality of that football team has changed so much that you've you've got to have the confidence and the belief that when they go to whoever they're going to go to next, they won't lose and at best they'll win. I'm, I'm actually, you know, my, even I'm turning my sort of natural sort of pessimism because of what, you know, has <laughs> been happening over the last decade or more into, look, have some trust in this team, have some belief in the characters. And it's interesting because I look back to as many years ago when I was at Carlisle United and they won promotion with Mick Wadsworth and it was um, a team of characters. And I thought, you know, there's, there are a lot of parallels here with that team. They, they, they had games they didn't play very well. And then there were other games they played, they blew teams away. And this is sort of, there, there are a lot of similarities between that team in, in 94, 95. And, and they'd been to Wembley. They were unlucky to lose to Birmingham City in, the, in what was then the Autoglass Trophy, the Golden Goal. Um, but they went on to win promotion because they had characters. And I think this Sunderland team is exactly the same. It's full of characters. McGeady, O'Nyan power, you know, that they're, they're players that stand out as a, Maguire, as a team that is is got this sort of never say die attitude at the minute. Aidan O'Brien at the weekend is sort of rousing post match speech. And why shouldn't we have confidence in them? They've gone ten unbeaten. They're now mm. they've pulled themselves from being also rans in the playoffs to being almost look nailed on automatic promotion candidates. So why have we got this sort of nagging self doubt? There's no reason to have it. There's no reason to doubt this team at all. They've got a mentality, a character, a spirit, and a momentum at the moment. I think we'll see them go up automatically.
1: The the huge game as well at Peterborough, like you said, could be a massive step. I mean, it's it's the best home record up against the best away record. Uh, Peterborough nil, nil forty four points. And, well, I was yeah, I was just about to say. I mean, you know, I mean, they've taken forty four from eighteen. We've taken thirty seven from eighteen. But actually, we've only lost once. Uh, away where they, they've lost twice at home. And like you say, is it set up to be one of those cagey, nervous games where nobody wants to give anything away? Do you think Johnson will just be looking to take the game to them, considering the form we're in?
2: Interesting question, because I think uh, I looked at the goals scored and against at home for Peterborough today as well, and it's phenomenal. It's 43 against 14 conceded. I think, like OK, take seven out of that for Accrington, mm-hmm. but it's still quite um, a significant Shift, you know, in terms of they've been winning games by two or three goals at home, and they've got a goal scoring Clark Harris clearly, um, who's in form. What will Lee Johnson do? I, that, he doesn't make a lot of changes for games. I think he'll have, while he always says he only looks one game at a time, I think he's got half an eye on Peterborough on Monday. I think he's got in his mind the team that he wants to play that he thinks will be capable of beating. Peterborough. I thought it was interesting that Maguire got uh, a run out with the under-23s this week. Mm. Now, um, you know, I might be cynical, but I just think there's a reason for that. And I think my gut feeling is that Maguire could well be involved involved against Oxford, his former club, on Friday. Um, And we'll see a change then again for Monday's game at Peterborough. Connor McLaughlin, interestingly, I think, you know, he's not playing for Northern Ireland tonight. Wouldn't be at all surprised if he's Back in the team for one of the two games to allow power to play in in midfield uh, because I think power adds a dynamism to that midfield that pushes the team on. Lee Johnson's not going to give anything away when we speak to him ahead of the Oxford game but you can sort of judge by the way he's been setting his teams up recently as to what sort of team he'll select and I've got to say the likes of Winchester, Stewart, O'Brien they're all coming into their own now a time when, you know, they're needed. And I think that was interesting hearing conversations about Carl Winchester from a few fans on Total Sport this week about Winchester not looking quite at, at it when he first arrived and looking a bit off the pace. But actually, in the last few games, Winchester's been, you know, fantastic. And he's got options there. He's got options now with Jones coming back, O'Brien's back in, Bailey Wright's coming back. To, to me, it just... Ross Stewart could have a part to play as well. I'm sure he will have a part to play. And and Lee Johnson's never said that he and Charlie White can't play together up front. I think we saw that when Stuart made his debut, and he can play a, across the front three. I you know look if I was um, Peterborough, if I was Darren Ferguson, if I was Carl Robinson, I'd be thinking more about how are we going to stop Sunderland's threat. You know because that, that I think they do, you know, have a, th- a threat because they've got strength and depth. They've got a bench now which can be game changers and Lee Johnson's prepared to change things and I think that's been another interesting dynamic since he arrived that he's been more than prepared to make the most of the five substitutes where needed um and 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 that's been you know healthy as well going forwards yeah not
1: just that more than one formation in the same game well, which has been refreshing yeah, as well
2: <laughs> Phil Parkinson was so conservative you know it was just and, and you you can see why everybody tore their hair out i mean look Look don't get me wrong i'm not I've got nothing against phil parkinson and and his his track record his c v is you know you can hold that up to scrutiny at, at that level um mm. I've got no problem with that, but I think you know we all felt everybody felt that he hit the buffers. part of that was down to his own i think piece where he was mentally at the football club um in the same way I think that affected Jack Ross, and I think that again is a reflection on the size of the job that any manager of Sunderland takes on. I don't think people realise quite, as managers in football, how big a job it is and all it entails, actually, and all it embraces. Um, And, you know, I think you can clearly see how it affected Simon Grayson, Jack Ross, Phil Parkinson. At the moment, Lee Johnson's dealing with it. (laughs) And, you know, he's he's clearly got sort of invaluable experience, You've like a Bristol City, you know, who are a big football club, there's no question. So I think he's got the wherewithal to deal with that, but uh, at the moment, you know, he is what seems to be a manager who's flexible, uh, forward-thinking, positive, and uh, at the moment, results are going for him, even when Sunderland aren't playing very well, and that in itself suggests that something is, you know, something is happening that is right and is working behind the scenes. Yeah. So, so from
1: the from the Easter. Uh... Games in from the for a total for the two games. If you if you got a prediction in terms of what our kind of punch total will be from from the Easter schedule,
2: bizarrely, I don't really like giving predictions. But if I take the (laughs) the, the, the sort of my alter ego, which I was just saying about how I've been looking at back at you know teams in the past, my alter ego is telling me that I should have more confidence and less self doubt. And I think Sunderland will win both games now. The other ego. The one that is always pessimistic and thinking, oh, typical Sunderland, they'll draw with Oxford and draw with Peterborough, and they'll both end in draws. <laughs> so you can you, your options. You've got fifty-fifty here, or you can phone a friend.
1: <laughs> well, like I said, I think uh, for the first time, I think uh, you were right before. I think for the first time in a long time, Sunderland fans are optimistic. So so let's go, let's go for the six points over the weekend. And and you said earlier you thought uh, you, Sunderland were pretty much. Kind of well, yeah, I'm not sure you've said a shoe in, but you're predicting Sunderland will get an automatic promotion place. Do you think, uh, do you think the, the the title's on?
2: Well, if I was a Sunderland player, I'd be gunning for it actually, and I think it is, I think mm. it is there for the taking. I, I, I think of the three, and I do, I do still think it's a three horse race of the three teams. I think Sunderland have got the credentials, and actually, I think they've got history behind them as well, and I think they will. There's a very bold statement here, and this is hopefully where the internet breaks down and we lose the signal. <laughs> and I bravely predict Sunderland to win the League One title. <laughs> well, there
1: you go. Heard it here first. Just leaves and say, well, have a, have a great Easter covering the games, Nick.
2: Oh, I was going to ask actually, have you already sorted your prep out, or is that still. No, I've, I'm, I'm working. I've, I've done my Oxford prep, and I'm, I'm sort of started on the Peterborough prep because the turnaround's so quick. Um, yeah. So I'm ahead of the game on that one. I've just got to fill in the Fleetwood score and then do the team that played uh, against Fleetwood on, on Friday. So that's Sunday's Sunday's homework is to do the uh, the team that played for Peterborough against Fleetwood. Uh, all the other bits and bobs, the Subutio figures have, have drawn in, the, <laughs> all those bits and bobs are done. Brilliant. Well,
1: I really, uh, genuinely hope you uh, enjoy yourself over the weekend. Cause I actually, I suspect if if you enjoy yourself, then we all might have a, a good weekend. Uh, Easter weekend. This well, no, weekend. no, it just makes
2: it, uh, it's a happier journey back on the train with Benno. That's all I'm looking forward. To. It's it's all about. <laughs> it's keeping it's keeping him. It's keeping Benno happy. It's all about keeping your co- <laughs> commentator happy. It's all my life revolves around. Cool. Keep Benno happy. The world's all right.
1: <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I hope he's over of the moon by Mon- Monday evening. But uh, but yeah,
2: but but look, just leaves me to
1: say thank you very much for your time, Nick. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. No problem, Chris. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Good stuff. And and thanks again, everyone, for listening. Um, look out for the player ratings uh, immediately after the final whistle on the site and our player ratings pods that should drop uh, very soon after the final whistle. But uh, but from us, it's bye for
0: now. Rock me, baby.